Lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used, who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. There is one additional announcement I want to share with you as we get started this morning. Uh, many of you were here last Sunday and were able to witness and celebrate with us as Avery put on Christ in baptism, and we just want to acknowledge that wonderful, uh, wonderful event last Sunday. But on Friday afternoon, Alexander Pritchett, the son of Jason and Dana Pritchett, also put on Christ in baptism, and a few of us were able to be here to witness and to celebrate that with him. So it's been a, a wonderful week here at the Buford Church of Christ as two of our young people have chosen uh, to become ch uh, children of God through baptism. And so we just want to make sure everybody's aware of that as we get started this morning. I want to uh, continue our study of Acts, but, but I want to start with a story I heard about a practitioner of alternative medicine who opened a clinic in a small town and placed a sign in the window. The sign said, get treated for $20. If not cured, we'll give you $100. It, you, we'll treat you for $20. If you're not cured, we'll give you $100. And there was a lawyer in that town who thought, all right, I'm going to go make some money. And so he went to the clinic and he complained of not being able to taste. And just for the record of the joke, this joke preceded COVID. Um, anyway, he complained of not being able to taste anything. And so the practitioner summoned his nurse and said, go get the medicine out of box number 14 and let's give three drops to this patient. And they brought the medicine in, gave three drops on the tongue of the, of the lawyer, and the lawyer spit it out and said, gross, that's kerosene. And the practitioner said, congratulations, you've been healed of your loss of taste. Now you owe me $20. Well, the lawyer paid his $20 and he left. He came back a few days later, and this time he said, I've lost my memory. I just can't remember anything. And the practitioner said to his nurse, go get the medicine out of box 14. And let's put three drops on his tongue. And so she went and got the medicine and once again placed the, the drops of medicine on his tongue. And he spit it out again and said, that's still kerosene. You gave it to me last time to treat my loss of taste. And the practitioner said, congratulations, you've been cured of your memory loss. You owe me $20. The lawyer was furious at this point. He paid what he owed. He left. He waited a couple weeks. He came back. And he said, I'm going to get him this time. He came back to the practitioner and said, I can't see very well. My vision is blurry and, and, and it's, it's starting to, to go out. And the practitioner said, well, I don't have any medicine for that. So here's a $100 bill. 
and he handed the man the cash, and the man looked at it, and he goes, wait, this is a $20 bill, not a $100 bill. And the practitioner said, great, congratulations, you've been cured of your eyesight issues. You owe me $20. And here's my point. Here's my point. There are many illnesses, many diseases, many conditions that affect us today, and despite our advancements in science and technology and medicine, they are still uncurable. And for some of us, there are still treatments that are unaffordable. And so it's no surprise to me that Jesus' ability to heal people was one of the most appealing aspects of his ministry while he was on this earth. Throughout his ministry, Jesus performed at least 16 specific medical healings. We have at least three recorded mass healings, three recorded times at a minimum, where we're just told he healed everyone in that region who were brought to him with diseases. Jesus was known in his lifetime for healing diseases. He miraculously remedied fever, cured leprosy, reversed paralysis, corrected deformities, stopped hemorrhages, cured deafness, restored sight, remedied dropsy, and reattached a severed ear. And these miraculous healings, they served as evidence that he was, in fact, the Son of God. You may recall that when John the Baptist was in prison, he sent messengers to verify that Jesus was the one who is to come. Luke chapter 7 and verse 19. In verse 22 of that same chapter, Jesus informed those individuals to go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. In other words, Jesus cited his ability to cure those medical issues as evidence that he was the Son of God. And after Jesus returned to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower his apostles to continue his healing ministry. And that's where we come to in our study of Acts. Because the first recorded event after the birth of the church, which is recorded in Acts chapter 2, when you get to Acts chapter 3, the first recorded event after the birth of the church, we read about Peter and John going to the temple and encountering a lame beggar in the process. And upon seeing that lame beggar, Peter said in Acts chapter 3 and verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter and John didn't have money to give this guy, but they did have something better. Access to healing power. Now that particular power is not available to you and I today. The gift of healing as it is identified throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 12 was one of the supernatural abilities the apostles received through that unique experience of Holy Spirit baptism on the day of Pentecost. And as a result of that event, the apostles were able to pass that gift on to others through the laying on of their hands, according to Acts chapter 8 and verse 17. But these gifts were not intended to be passed down in perpetuity. Paul clearly, clearly said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8, 
that miraculous gifts, including the gifts of healing, would eventually fail, would eventually cease, would eventually vanish away. And then he indicated in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, that their cessation was to be expected because miraculous gifts are partial, partial revelations rather than complete revelations. And as a result, would be unnecessary once that which is perfect has come. That which is perfect can only be a reference to God's inspired word that we have completed today, that we hold in our hands. Since it is the source of information for the man of God to be complete, as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says. And so when the apostles and those to whom they imparted this gift of healing ceased to exist, those gifts ceased to exist. But does that mean that Jesus intends for his disciples to no longer provide ministries of healing? I don't think so. See, when I encounter a story like the healing of this lame man in Acts chapter 3, on the surface, I see a first century miraculous physical healing. But in between the lines, I'm reminded of the role the church can play in providing practical healing to the lives of of those who are hurting. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. As we encounter a healing miracle in our study through Acts, what application does that have for you and I today in an age where we don't have the ability to impart miraculous healing? So I want to start here. I want to start by showing you that Jesus didn't just heal physical conditions. Jesus came not just to correct the maladies that plagued our bodies. He came to do more. Earlier, I identified several of the physical healings that Jesus miraculously performed. An Old Testament prophecy indicated that such healings would be the work of the Messiah. You can look at Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, which indicates that when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We have evidence in Messianic prophecy that something the Messiah will be able to do is to heal the physical conditions of those who are suffering. But that's not the only thing Old Testament prophecy has to say about the work of the coming Messiah. Consider Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2 in particular. Isaiah chapter 61 is a messianic prophecy that depicts the Messiah as one sent by God to fulfill some specific responsibilities. And I encourage you to look at this verse with me. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. In Isaiah chapter 61, the tasks of the Messiah that are outlined in those first two verses are not miraculous in nature. Preaching good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, comforting those who mourn. Those are not supernatural activities, but they are healing activities. 
They address healing not so much of the human body, but of the human spirit and the conditions that it faces. So one thing we can take away from this description in Isaiah chapter 61 of the work of the Messiah is that Jesus came not just to heal physical illnesses, he also came to address our emotional, our relational, our mental, and especially our spiritual wounds. Think about some of the events that unfold in the life of Jesus. When a father brought his demon-possessed boy to Jesus and explained that the demon often cast his boy into fire and into water in order to kill him. Jesus cast out the demon, but Jesus didn't heal the father physically. But by casting out the demon from his son and making the man's son whole again, he did heal the father mentally by removing the source of his ongoing anxiety. When Jesus encountered a widow who was laying to rest her only child, he didn't heal the woman physically, but in bringing her son back to life, he did heal her emotionally by taking away the source of her grief. When Jesus encountered a colony of lepers and cleansed them of their diseases, he did heal them physically. But he also healed them relationally and socially because their restored health allowed them to return to their homes with their families, to return to their places of employment so that they could make a living again and not live in poverty, and so that they could return to the temple so that they could worship God with the community of faith. When the religious leaders brought to Jesus that woman who had been caught in adultery, he didn't heal her physically. But by not condemning her and telling her to go and sin no more, he healed her spiritually by giving her a clean slate. And when after his resurrection he asked Peter three times, Do you love me? He didn't heal Peter physically. But by giving him an opportunity to make up for his three denials, he healed Peter emotionally by removing his guilt. You see, Jesus came to heal more than just the physical maladies that have plagued mankind since the fall. He came also to address the other hurts, the other wounds, the other baggage that we carry. And so when the Pharisees and scribes observed Jesus dining in the house of Matthew, the tax collector, they asked, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' response is recorded for us in Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. And his response was this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And that's the passage that is the basis for Jesus' identification as the great physician. Now think about that. The very passage that is the source of us referring to Jesus as the great physician doesn't even talk about physical healing at all. But it does address spiritual healing. So when Jesus mentioned those who are sick in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31, he wasn't talking about those who suffered from a physical illness. He was talking about those who are sin sick. 
And he is the healer of every spiritual illness because as Peter would later declare in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. And so one thing I really want us to understand about Christ right now is that he did not come just to heal physical conditions. He came to address your emotional wounds. He came to address your mental exhaustion. He came to address your relational baggage. He came to address your spiritual illness. Jesus came for more than just the physical healing. And because of that, I think it's worth mentioning that the church is called to continue Jesus' ministry of healing. As Christ's followers, we are routinely identified in Scripture as his disciples. Do you know what a disciple is? A, a disciple, that term, refers to a student or a pupil of a teacher. And that means that a disciple is one who learns from their teacher and is responsible for continuing the work of their teacher. So since our teacher came to heal people, not just physically, but holistically, if you will, then we must, as his disciples, continue his ministry of healing. Or to say that another way, since our teacher was the great physician, we should all be physician's assistants. Many passages have implication on the church's involvement in providing healing to the hurting. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 13, we're called to contribute to the needs of the saints. A couple verses later in verse 15 of Romans 12, we're instructed to weep with those who weep. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 25, we're called to have the same care for one another, and it goes on to address suffering as one of the categories in which we should have care for one another. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2 instructs us to bear one another's burdens. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13 calls on us to encourage one another. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 tells us to have sympathy for one another. When you look at these passages with the mindset of a healing idea, then what you can see is that they have implications on us when it comes to healing the hurting. All of those passages and all of those statements can all be understood in light of a responsibility to help others heal. But nowhere is the healing work of the church more evident, more evident than in one in particular passage. It's James chapter 5 particularly verses 13 through 16. I encourage you to turn there with me, though it is a section of Scripture that you are probably familiar with. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is a unique passage that undoubtedly addresses physical healing to some degree. The Greek term 
Translated sick in verse 14 is the typical term used in reference to a physical malady. And the anointing with oil that is referenced as something for elders to do was undoubtedly a first century medicinal practice. And so we turn here, and you're probably thinking, all right, Kyle's going to explain why elders are instructed to anoint with oil. Kyle's going to tell us how that heals us. No, that's not the point of the passage. In fact, that's not even the emphasis that James is placing on the passage. If you look at the passage, the whole emphasis is on prayer. Yes, James offers these instructions to the elders, and we might not be able to fully comprehend them because we're not existing in a first century environment. But the point of the passage from James' perspective is not emphasizing the oil, it's emphasizing the prayers. When it comes to physical healing, James says the church is responsible for praying for God to provide the healing. But even though this passage does mention some physical illness, it's also worth pointing out that there is an address to other types of illness in the passage as well. Particularly, you'll notice the reference to having sins forgiven in verse 15, followed by the instruction in verse 16 for us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another in order, the text will say, that you may be healed. See, James is not saying that physical sickness and spiritual sickness are intertwined, though that can be the case in some situations. Instead, what he seems to be doing here is identifying what you can do to help with one's physical healing, which is to pray for their health, and if there is a need for spiritual healing, then you can address that through the protocol that's mentioned here, confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another. The point is that at the very least, James's instructions highlight the responsibility of the church in continuing the ministry of healing that began with Christ. A healing that especially addresses spiritual illness. That's the premise I want to build off of this morning. Christ came not just to address physical illness. The great physician came primarily to address spiritual illness. And he's the same great physician that Matthew chapter 11 is going to invite everyone to come to him because he can give the rest that no one else can give. And as his disciples, we should be contributing to the aid of that type of healing as well. Because we're surrounded right now in this audience and in the community at large with people who are hurting from maladies that aren't physical, that are mental, that are emotional, that are relational, that are spiritual. And we can help with those. But what does it take to be a physician's assistant? That's what I want to talk about as we return to Acts chapter 3. There are two things I notice in the study of Acts 3 and the interactions between Peter and John and this lame man that I think should be applied to our own lives so that we can assist with helping people heal. And the first thing is this, that being a physician's assistant necessitates observation. 
One thing I noticed about Peter and John's interaction with this lame man is the fact that it happened on this particular day. Now let me explain what I mean. We're told in Acts chapter 3 and verse 2 that the lame man was laid daily at the beautiful gate. In fact, this individual's presence at the temple compound at this particular gate was so habitual and so well known that when he was healed, you can see down in verses 9 and 10, that all the people recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. This guy was physically present there so frequently that everyone recognized him. Everyone knew, hey, that's the guy that sits outside that gate over there and asks for alms every day. And maybe you'll remember from last week's lesson that Acts chapter 2 and verse 46 informs us that the church, the church of which Peter and John are not only members but leaders, the church continued to meet together in the temple courts every day. In other words, the lame man was in the same location, or at least the same vicinity, of where the church met, and they were both there with the same amount of frequency. I point this out for this simple reason. That tells me that it was highly likely that this was not the first time that Peter and John passed by this individual. But it may have been the first time they truly saw this individual. Here's what I mean. I don't think it's a coincidence that Peter and John offer healing to this individual in this chapter, the chapter that immediately follows the arrival of the Holy Spirit and his impartation of miraculous abilities on the apostles. When they go to the temple on this day, assumedly soon after the events of Acts chapter 2, they went there with a different perspective, a different focus, a different set of eyes. They went there looking for opportunities to connect people with Christ. And so I can't help but think that maybe they had passed this guy before, but on this day they didn't overlook him. Because now they were aware that they had something to offer him. See, sometimes the reasons we fail to offer healing has nothing to do with our desire or our resources or our ability and everything to do with our sight. Sometimes we fail to help others heal simply because we fail to see their wounds. And if we want to be physician's assistants, then we need to be observant like the great physician. Jesus, during his lifetime, would notice people that nobody else would notice. Think about that woman with the hemorrhaging problem. Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house to address the uh, illness of Jairus' daughter. And Jesus is in a crowd, people surrounding him, people bumping into him, people seeking his attention. And suddenly he felt the power leave him as this woman with a hemorrhaging problem simply reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus stops everything to find her. Jesus had the uncanny ability to see people and to see their struggles in a way that nobody else did. 
you're going to leave here today and you're going to have a busy week, I imagine. And your busy week's going to bring you in contact with various people from various backgrounds in various life situations. Are you going to see their hurts? Are you going to open your eyes enough to see how you can connect them with Christ who can bring relief and rest and refreshment to their life in a way nothing else can? Because that's what happens here with Peter and John. And I want you to think about the parable of the sheep and the goats that's recorded in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. It's a parable that I mention quite often because I think it has unique applications and unique ways of fitting into our lives. The parable essentially tells us about how Jesus divides people at the judgment based on whether or not they contributed to the needs of others. Jesus presents in this parable the expectation that his people, those who are saved, will feed the hungry, welcome the strangers, clothe the naked, and visit the sick and imprisoned. But do you realize what the biggest difference is in this parable between the sheep who are saved and the goats who are punished? We assume, based on the parable, based on a, a, a general reading of the text, that the difference is that the sheep, the sheep are the ones who fed the hungry. The sheep are the ones who gave drink to the thirsty. The sheep are the ones who clothed those who were unclothed. The sheep are the ones who visited those who had no company. And that's the defining factor because the goats didn't do those things. But ultimately, you have to take a step back beyond that. Because when they gave answer to the uh, to, to one who divided them, they were, they were asked, when did we see? When did we see these problems? The sheep, the sheep didn't, didn't even realize they had done all this for Christ. The goats never noticed anyone who needed this help. See, the ultimate divider between the sheep and the goats was their ability to see people who had needs, people who were hurting. An easily overlooked takeaway from this parable is the fact that the only way we're going to be able to be sheep is by being intentionally observant of the needs, the wounds, the hurts, the baggage that others are dealing with. And that was the game changer on this particular day when Peter and John encountered the lame man that they likely passed by every day on their way to the temple. They saw him. They saw his hurt. They saw his need. And then they addressed it. So if we want to be physician's assistants, we're going to need to be observant. But there's one more thing. If we're going to be physician's assistants, we're going to need to do extra in Acts chapter 3 and verse 7, after Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, we're told that he took the lame man by the right hand and raised him up. That may seem like an insignificant detail here, but I think it's worth mentioning. You see, Peter and John, they didn't make this man stand on his own. 
Peter reached out and touched him. He made physical contact with this man and helped him to his feet. Peter didn't have to do that. The healing would have been successful whether or not Peter touched this guy. Ultimately, what Peter did here is something additional, something extra, something that wasn't necessary. What Peter did is what we often refer to as going the extra mile, to use the language of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 41. Think about it. The lame man likely received very little physical contact during his life. People with deformities and illnesses like him were looked down on in that particular culture. On one occasion, Jesus and his disciples, which would have included Peter and John, on one occasion, they encountered a man blind from birth. And that prompted the disciples to ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, the preconceived notion of that day was that if you had a physical deformity, If you had a long-term illness, then you must have done something to deserve it. And as a result, guys like this lame man who had been lame from birth, they were social outcasts with whom the so-called spiritually mature would not even dine, would have no contact with. And this guy has been so overlooked and so mistreated throughout the years that he didn't even initially look at Peter and John. Look back at verse 4 of Acts chapter 3. Peter had to tell this guy to look at us. This guy has asked them for a contribution, for a handout, for a donation, for some form of charity, and he won't even make eye contact with them. He's so beat down and broken in life that he makes no effort to look at them, and Peter has to tell him, look at us. And only then did the layman fix his attention on them, according to verse 5. So if this guy was so used to being ignored that he didn't even make eye contact with Peter and John until they told him to, can you imagine how it felt when Peter reached down and lifted him up? When Peter physically touched him. And I think what this guy does from here on out demonstrates just how significant Peter's touch was. Because if you look down at verse 11 of Acts chapter 3, we find out that this lame man who has been healed clung to Peter and John. The image here is of a man who is physically attaching himself to them. The image here is of a man who won't let go of them. I think that's an indicator of not only how much his healing, the healing of his physical body meant to him, but also how much Peter's willingness to touch him meant. Because from there on out, this guy didn't stop touching Peter. And it's all because Peter did something extra. He went above and beyond. He chose to do something in addition to the bare minimum requirement of his calling as a disciple. And I believe that if we want to be physician's assistants, we have to go the extra mile in our healing efforts too. Because ultimately it's about love. If I truly love my neighbor like I love myself, as Mark chapter 12 and verse 31 tells me, 
And if I truly love my brothers and sisters in Christ the way that Christ loves me, as John chapter 13, verse 34 tells me to do, then I'm going to show my love in my willingness to do the extra mile stuff for people. Because God's inspired word doesn't just tell me who to love. And God's inspired word doesn't just tell me how to love. It also tells me how much to love. And I want to bring your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, where Paul gives these instructions. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, you know you're supposed to love people, and you are loving people, but now I'm challenging you to love extra. Love that does more and more is love that is going the extra mile. When it comes to the hurts and the wounds and the baggage that people have, Are you a good physician's assistant? Are you noticing their need for healing, uh, particularly a healing that only Jesus Christ can provide? And are you doing the extra stuff to help them find that healing? I want you to notice one last thing from Acts chapter 3. See, when Peter and John healed this guy, it afforded them the opportunity to share the gospel with everyone around the temple that day. And after Peter told them, told that audience what they need to do in response to the gospel message, he indicated that the result of them repenting and turning back would be that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's Acts chapter 3 and verse 20. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Could you use times of refreshing today? Or do you know somebody who needs times of refreshing? Maybe you need emotional refreshment as you encounter the grief that comes from losing a loved one. Maybe you need relational refreshment as you endure a troublesome marriage. Maybe you need mental refreshment as you deal with the frustrations and demands of your job. Maybe you need financial refreshment as you try to recover from some poor decisions or some unexpected expenses. Maybe you need spiritual refreshment as you wrestle with obstacles to your faith. Regardless of whatever kind of refreshment you need, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the invitation. The invitation to come. The invitation to find the healing that only Christ can provide. And it starts with your spiritual healing. If you need to find forgiveness for your sins... The opportunity is available if you'll confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God and you'll repent of those sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. 
if you've found that forgiveness and become a child of God, but you've wandered away from His will, times of refreshment are here if you'll return to Him. If you're struggling in your life right now, and you need brothers and sisters in Christ to surround you and encourage you, to support you and strengthen you, that's what this invitation is about. And so at this time, we invite you to come for whatever need it may be that you have, while together we stand and sing.